0: For today's Elevenses, I thought I'd begin the discussion of literary magazines by reading an excerpt from William Faulkner's Absalom, Absalom. And all you need to know about this part of the story is that one character is handing a letter to another character and asking her to just hold on to it for her um, with the instructions that she can she can read it or she cannot read it or she can destroy it, but it's a gift. Um, and so she says, read it if you like or don't read it if you like you get born and you try this and you don't know why only you keep on trying it and you are born at the same time with a lot of other people all mixed up with them like trying to having to move your arms and legs with strings only the same strings are hitched to all the other arms and legs and the others all trying and they don't know why except that the strings are all in one another's way, like five or six people all trying to make a rug on the same loom. Only each one wants to weave his own pattern into the rug, and it can't matter, you know that, or the ones that set up the loom would have arranged things a little better. And yet it must matter, because you keep on trying, or having to keep on trying, and then all of a sudden, it's all over, and all you have left is a block of stone with scratches on it, provided there was someone to remember to have the marble scratched and set up, or had time to, and it rains on it, and the sun shines on it, and after a while they don't even remember the name and what the scratches were trying to tell, and it doesn't matter, and so maybe if you could go to someone, the stranger the better, and give them something, a scrap of paper, it would be at least a scratch, something, something that might make a mark on something that was once. And so what I, what I gather from this is that as writers, we realize that our most profound problem, after all, of course, the writing, the revisions, the rewrites, the drafts, is how we can best give someone the gift of those marks, or, um, and this problem seems to reach back even to grade school, how we can share well. <laughs> um, So who are our readers, and how do we reach them, and how do we share what we've done? And where do we send our writing, and what are the rules? Um, I know we all have a million questions about this. So at today's Elevinses, we're very happy to have David Hamilton, who's the editor of the Iowa Review. Um, And he's here to discuss his own insights on literary magazines. Um, David Hamilton has widely published both nonfiction and poetry, and his most recent collection of poems, Bao. Came out with Salt Publishing in 2006. So please welcome David Hamilton.
1: Thank you, Carol. Thank you all. It's quite a crowd this morning. Do you hear me well? Any problem with that? Uh, It's nice to be here. Nice that you all are here in Iowa City, uh, pursuing your dreams and ambitions as writers. Uh, We're all part of a far-flung community, sharing that one way or another, as Carol's lovely passage, wonderful metaphor for what we do, uh, valorizes and underscores. I take it my role here is to talk about literary magazines, which I'm happy to do, having been uh, the editor of the one that our university sponsors for 30 years, and before that, an assistant editor, or I guess that's what they called me, an assistant editor at another university's magazine for three or four years, which sort of gave me my start, I suppose. How many of you have, at one time or another, uh, been associated with worked actively on the staff of a literary magazine, large or small. A few, only a few. Well, you're missing out on something. And that, I suppose, is why you're here. Um, A long time ago, before I was associated with any such magazine, um, newly married for the first time, um, my then father-in-law was proudly showing me a collection of his. He was, among other things, a book collector. And he collected a couple of kinds of books, but one of his collections was of Robert Frost. That collection uh, came to rest in this university's library, as a matter of fact. And then his daughter and I divorced. But anyway, uh, I don't think there was any cause and effect there. And we're still pretty good friends. And we'll see each other soon because our daughter is getting married soon. So it's all, in a vague way, happy. But in another sense, (laughs) uh, he was showing me his collection of Robert Frost. Nico, Mia, there are chairs up here. You don't have to crouch, come on in. Don't stand on ceremony. Good to see you. Right in there somewhere. You can find two together, even. Uh, Nico and Mia have both worked with me at the Iowa Review. So that raises the quantity of hands that would have shown a few moments ago. Anyway, as uh, Mr. Wallace was showing me his Frost collection and was handing me copies of uh, first editions, second editions, third editions, both English and American, of everything Robert Frost ever published, he then opened up another cabinet and said, and this is the ephemera. I didn't realize that that was a technical term for collectors. But if you have exhausted the book possibilities for collecting Robert Frost or Marilyn Robinson or whomever you like, then you might want to collect all the first appearances of as many individual pieces as you can. And that's the ephemera. So there would be newspapers and journals, most of them defunct, in which there was a Robert Frost poem or snippet of some kind. Ephemera. Ephemeral. That's what I've spent my life doing. What do you think of that? (laughs) Uh, When I took over the job, one of my colleagues, who came came along to be a fairly well-known airport novelist, asked me, told me, in fact, it was something I should not do. I would be wasting my life. Who will you be in ten years, he asked, except somebody who edited the Iowa Review for ten years. I had no answer for that. I still have no answer for that, and I multiply that by three and haven't quite given up yet. Another term for these journals, you know, is, is fugitive. You've heard of Fugitive publication, I don't think it means so much that it runs off and hides, though that's what it feels like a lot of the time. I suppose it simply derives from uh, centrifugal, you know, sort of the outward running forces sending you out, Lord knows where, a line of it here, a line of it there. Uh, what keeps people at it, because not only have I done it for 30 years, but a lot of My companion editors, I can think of the one at uh, the Michigan Quarterly Review or the one at Prairie Schooner or the one at the Missouri Review, Uh, the one at Swanee Review, Uh, the one not quite at Gettysburg Review, though he's gaining gaining on us, Uh, the one at the Hudson Review until he died and then his wife took over. Done it for 20, 30, 40 years. Partisan Review. The man who edited the Partisan Review did it for 40-plus years. What keeps people going, doing it? Ephemeral, fugitive publication. Uh, I suppose it would take a philosopher, psychologist to answer that well. My own thought is that it has much to do with a sense of community, uh, that... As writers, we work by ourselves. It's a little painful working by yourself all the time, unless you're a very peculiar person, which may mean that you're on your way to be a truly great writer. Um, But that for most of us, doing something together is pleasant, and there are small communities that are cooperative in putting out a magazine, large or small. You can think of the community as a series of concentric circles. And in the innermost might be the staff, and the next one might be their subscribers, and the next one out there, people who peek in on it once in a while. Or the innermost one might be the writers, and then the next one, the subscribers, etc. And I don't know where that places the staff. But the boundaries are always permeable. And people take on one role and then another and uh, share it from one magazine to another. But I know for my own part, uh, soon after I took over the Iowa Review, through just a little bit of accident at the start, I hit on uh, a very fortunate system of having, at that point, Writers' Workshop uh, students become my assistant editors and there would be four of them at first, appointed each year as quarter-time RAs. And then to help them out a little bit, we divided the same pod only three ways and made it third-time RAs, but only three of them. And the pattern soon became one poet and one fiction writer, and then somebody from uh, the English department or another degree program often associated with what became our MFA program in nonfiction, And those three people would be my main staff. And around them would collect friends of theirs, usually, who would volunteer to be screening readers for the review. So we develop reading circles for each genre. And for years, I would meet with each one more or less once a week. That's diffused now, so I have, have a friend who has taken over, also on the staff here at Iowa, Hugh Ferrer who's taken over running the, the fiction table, and uh, Lynn Nugent, who's over here on my right, and my uh, managing editor, for four years, I think, working with the review now, has taken over largely the nonfiction desk. Uh, we confer in a corner once in a while about that, and I've been running the poetry desk. And so these people come and go. Some stay for a couple of years, Lynn, four years, going on five. Uh, Some of the volunteer readers are around for two or three years. Occasionally there's somebody who doesn't really want to go away. Um, You know how people come to Iowa City and tend to stay in Iowa City, uh, finding one reason or another to do it, and they keep coming to the the poetry meeting or the fiction meeting. There's one girl who has been... uh, applying to the fiction workshop for several years and has been reading fiction with us uh, three or four years now I think maybe three years and this year she got into the workshop and she says she'll be with us again in the fall so another another tour ahead for her I suppose and I'm sure it's my relation with those people my sense of uh, community largely informal a class that I never have to grade it's the best kind of class and we can just talk about things and they teach me much more than I teach them, and that's what keeps me at it. I suppose there are versions of that elsewhere. Uh, I've been told that we're unusual. In, in fact, somebody said it's impossible to do it the way you do it, uh, because you're supposed to be a mighty dictator looking down on everybody, and I tend to be a little cooperative. But uh, it seems to work. People more or less admire the magazine, sometimes a great deal. So that's all right with me. The magazines, you know, the the landscape of American magazines uh, divides into subdivisions, I suppose you'd say. And you can name as many of them as you can invent names for. But I would simplify and say there are three main kinds. There are the real littles, There are the littles and there are the biggies, something like that, right? Uh, The real littles, I'll call coterie magazines, they tend to be short-lived. They are run informally and unofficially and sponsored only by themselves. Uh, Now a good number of them are on the web. They don't have to be in print, although the grand tradition, of course, is for them to be in print. Uh, That's where the romance of the little magazine really resides, Because there are some very famous ones of the kind, Uh, the Black Mountain Review, for example, which ran for only five issues, edited by Robert Creeley, or Locus Solus, which ran for only five issues, run by John Ashbery and friends when they were in Paris. In fact, fact, it's only four issues because one of the publications is a double issue. Uh, Locally, there have been a great number of them too. the Spirit That Moves Us, which distinguished itself at one point by being the first American publisher of a Middle European poet who won the Nobel Prize. I forget whether he was Czech or, or where he was from, but and I, I can't recall the name for you either, I'm sorry. But somehow or other, The Spirit That Moves Us got a hold of his work and, and became his American publisher for a time. There was another one called gum. Uh, Gum was a little journal like this, and uh, maybe it looked as if it was held together by chewing gum. I'm not sure. Uh, Or maybe it was supposed to stick to you like gum when you step on it on the street. Uh, It didn't last too long either, but it was fun while it did. There was another one, dental floss. Maybe you see a theme in local publication they came out of the same generation of sort of uh, workshop salon de refusé, you know, the, the ones who don't quite fit into the workshop, and so they create their own space. And God love them for it. Dental Floss was published in West Branch, a neighboring town, and it was a letterpress publication, very elegantly designed, handsomely turned out, It'd be much less ephemeral than many issues of the Iowa Review because it, it'll be, it was printed on enduring paper and with such artistry that if you got a hold of a copy, you'd want to keep it, no matter who the fool was who was inside. <laughs> uh, and the coterie magazines tend to publish themselves and their friends. It's a way of sort of establishing yourself in the world of letters. And it's a time-honored way. And if you are complaining about not being accepted and not getting into print, well, start your own magazine. That's what, it, you know, William Carlos Williams' friends did. That's what the objectivists did. That's what the language poets have done. That's what one group after another until they become kind of noticeable. Then they start getting grants and exchanging subscriptions and printing each other and reviewing each other's books. And suddenly you have a movement on the horizon rather than uh, frustrated people in a corner. Dental Floss published the editor and his wife and the editor of Gum and the editor of Spirit That Moves Us and their friends, and they called themselves Actualists, and they published a few other people. Actualists, that's a movement, right? I don't know what it means, but it was a movement. And, uh, and people started making careers of, of at least being visible as writers in, in our country. And finally, Dental Floss was so artful in its uh, handling of its magazine that it grew up a little and got tired of its name and learned that uh, Minnesota supports the arts better than Iowa. And so it picked up its press, literally, and moved to the Twin Cities and renamed itself Coffee House Press and coffee house press is now a press that gets reviewed in the new york times and elsewhere and publishes a great number of writers whom you'd be sorry not to have on the landscape of our writing. Uh, they seem to emphasize uh, multicultural diversity in their uh, phalanx of authors. But I don't know that there's any particular formula there of um, Anyway, the Coterie magazine is the grand tradition of do-it-yourself, create-your-own-audience, create-your-own-scene magazine. Uh, Some of our uh, uh, graduates, shall I say, people who have worked at the Iowa Review have gone off and started their own magazines too. One of the best known is Fence which is a New York City publication. And the people who started Fence, the two main ones, Rebecca Wolf and and Matt Rohr, were in our poetry reading circle for about three years. And they were another pair who couldn't quite bring themselves to leave town until they finally did. And then they went and did it in a big way. (coughs) Go to New York, start a magazine. Fence has now been taken over by some school. I forget what it is. So now it will have uh, university sponsorship, too, which will probably guarantee its future for some time to come. Which brings me to the next set of magazines, which would be the, uh, the reviews, the quarterlies, partisan review and things like that, including the Iowa Review. So many of them associated with universities, and that gives them a stability underfunded perhaps, but funded nevertheless, not a bad catch, Uh, and also allows for somebody like me to stay in place for (laughs) a generation or more until you get sick and tired of me, Uh, and keep the magazine going with the help of whatever cadre of of assistants and associates one finds. Uh, Some universities have clearly seen this as a way to make a name for themselves, to uh, put themselves on the map. If you just look at the Georgia Review and its size, uh, the the quality of its printing, uh, the low cost, the four-color reproductions often in the middle, uh, you know that the university is putting money into it that uh, uh, subscription costs do not cover. And that is generally true for all of these magazines. It's just a matter of more or less. The ones in the South, for curious cultural reasons that you can, uh, you probably know as much about as I, but the Southern Review and the Swanee Review and the Georgia Review and the Virginia Quarterly Review uh, tend to be the best endowed financially and often have uh, budgets of quarter of a million a year to work with and will have editors who don't double as professors, but are there to be editors, and uh, small but able business staff. Well, you know, the university can decide to put its money into a uh, Hancher Auditorium or to a museum of art or a literary magazine or a football team or or whatever, and the university will make its choices, and over time those show we're a much more modest operation financially, but it's not as if the university puts in nothing, uh, those three RAs and some fraction of my salary that's never officially determined, and um, some costs for overruns and and what it takes to simply print the journal and distribute it and so on, you know. Uh, the Michigan Quarterly Review, I was told this year, has a budget line that's the, uh, the equivalent of an assistant professor's salary. Uh, I don't know what that is. It's been a while since I was being recruited as an assistant professor, but I imagine it's 50000 or a little more, uh, especially at Michigan. And clearly that doesn't include everything. It doesn't include the editor's salary, who's a full professor, um, and has been doing it as long as I. And it doesn't include his office manager, but I don't know. It takes a little backing, and the universities have been the place to give it for a couple of generations now. Some of these magazines started in the early part of the 20th century. A great number of them started in the 60s and the 70s, when there was public money for the arts in greater amounts than there now is. And then uh, they get going, and a certain uh, system prevails, and they keep going even though administrations sometimes chafe at having to put up with them. Now, the main difference between the Coterie magazine and the University Review, aside from that stability of backing, is that their mission is a little different. Uh, I never conceived of the Iowa Review as the Hamilton Review. Uh, Somebody was supporting me in doing it, Uh, therefore... I take a back seat in it compared to an editor of a coterie magazine who, quite frankly, puts himself forward or herself forward and their circle of chums, friends, right? People who are co-conspirators in, in defining the art as they wish to define it. The University Review exists in a different realm, of, and it seems to me that its chief mission is to open its doors and let anybody try and to do its level best to read whoever wishes to send, and then make some choices as best they can to put out an interesting magazine issue by issue. Now that means that we receive an awful lot more than we can use. We only publish three times a year, of 192 pages more or less an issue, and not all of that literary matter. So under 600 pages a year, and we'll get several thousand submissions in the course of the year, when actually we we publish about 120 different writers. It's not exactly 40 per issue, but it's pretty close to that. So it means that uh, we spend most of our time trying to be fair-minded readers to whoever would like to give us a try. And then we make selections and put out the magazines and put out the magazine and we take a kind of back seat to it ourselves, if we appear in the magazine, by we I mean myself or anybody on the staff with me, or for that matter, a colleague in the building, it's usually in a subordinate role, like introducing a little feature or writing a review or writing a bit of necessary commentary. But we don't publish, I don't publish my colleagues' fiction and poetry and essays except once in a very great while, and usually if it's rather eccentric. I mean, just sort of an unexpected uh, work. For example, I have a colleague who started life as a pianist, and he became an English prof. And at some point, uh, he got interested in the problem of a pianist or musicians hearing themselves recorded and the influence of that on their work as an artist. And he concocted a really elaborate study of trying to survey the experience of other pianists, some of whom he knew from being a Juilliard with them, and some he only knew by reputation, some he met later in life, and all of their experience with hearing themselves recorded. Because, as you can imagine, for some it would be traumatic, and for others it would be exhilarating and and it might have some influence on how they shape themselves as performers. Well, this seemed like such an unusual idea for an essay, and then the follow-through, about 40 pages in manuscript, uh, with rich in quotation and incident from these other pianists, just seemed to me too interesting to turn down. You know, And something like that uh, comes from the neighborhood, I'll put it in. Uh, another one from the widow of Don Justice, the poet who more than any other defined poetry in the workshop for a generation. He died about three years ago, and and his widow wrote a reminiscence of the Justice family history of his grandparents and parents in Florida, and surprised me with it, and I wasn't going to turn that down either. But for the most part, the work comes from people we don't know, often people we've never heard of before, people whose names are Uh, complete, might as well be Joe Smith, sometimes it is Joe Smith, uh, from somewhere in the country. And I think of ourselves as a kind of extension service uh, that allows the university's being and uh, cultural power, to whatever extent it has that, artistic sensibility, uh, to be open to whoever wants to try to join in. Uh, the, and you can see that one of the reasons that that is possible is that we're not in it for the bottom line. We're not in it for making a profit. Uh, so we don't have to worry too much whether uh, Kevin's piece on pianists is going to gain an audience in the world or Gene's memoir of the Justice family will, will sell well in New York or Los Angeles. If we just think it's interesting, we'll put it in. Now that brings us to the other kind of magazine, which is, of course, the, the weekly, the monthly, the commercial magazine, the Harpers, the Atlantics, the New Yorker is the king of them, uh, and has been for about as long as any of these literary magazines have been around. Uh, they do have a bottom-line consciousness, right? They sell a lot of advertising. They uh, live by selling advertising. And they can charge advertising depending on their subscription rate or their newsstand sales. And so they will practically give the magazine away so that they can uh, charge uh, higher rates for advertisers. No, they don't give it away, but they often have remarkably inexpensive subscription offers. Uh, And they are very much concerned with having big-name writers who will help sell and distribute the magazine for them. Now I should say too that the boundaries of all these magazines are permeable and if you spend much time in the game of writing and publishing you're likely to appear in all of them sooner or later. Certainly the first two kinds the Coterie Magazine and the University Review and then if you're fortunate and persistent uh, maybe once in a while once in a while in the big magazines too. I certainly no writer who writes a lot and keeps producing, uh, feels chagrined about being in a smaller magazine, having once been in a larger magazine, they realize that they have to send their work out all over, especially poets. Who else is going to see it except somebody <coughs> who reads a magazine? The, the magazine is the place for poetry like the art museum is for paintings, right? Uh, there's no other place to put it except now and then in a book and so they'll try anywhere and be glad to be received anywhere. Of course they're proud to be in the New Yorker. Uh, Harper's doesn't publish poetry unless they republish it from some other source, and the Atlantic publishes very little. So where else do they have to turn except the university magazines and then the the smaller magazines? Um, I should also say that the staffs are always made up of people who are at least friendly to writing or have some ambition as writers themselves, and there's a kind of inversion here where if the New Yorker-style magazine is the uh, king of the magazines, uh, it's the coterie magazine that will have the most active writers at the center of their staffs, precisely because they don't stick with it for very long and because they can be as irregular as they wish and they can be as eccentric as they wish, right? Right? But the people in those staffs you might always identify or think of as writers first and editors second. And if you get up to the New Yorker and Atlantic and Harper's, they are editors first and writers maybe third or fourth. Occasionally, you see, uh, but you don't find the poetry editor of the New Yorker in her own magazine. You used to occasionally her, her predecessor, Howard Moss, but not Alice Quinn. A couple of her assistants do appear from time to time. Uh, And we're sort of in the middle, where the university staff that runs the magazine, people like me, obviously have an affection for writing and may persist in it long enough to publish some ourselves. I certainly have, and most of my uh, uh, peers around the country have, or more than I. uh, And certainly the student staff that works with me aspires in that direction. But uh, we're spending... We frankly spend a lot of time doing the editing too. Um, Why am I pausing? Have I just run dry? Have I just plain run out of things to say now? But basically, three kinds of magazines with subsets thereof, of kind of inverse order of writer to editor in the editorial staff compared to the kinds of magazine they are. Uh, it's interesting how you might get the most editorial attention, the closest editorial attention, from the big magazine if you can get their attention at all. Uh, why would that be? Well, they're full-time. Right? They're paid to do that. That's where their salary comes from. In my case, in the case of the students who work with me, it's always part-time, and you're always juggling with, with your main duties. I'm a, at least a half-time professor, and it seems like three-quarter-time professor, generally given uh, thesis responsibility, committee work, other than the magazine, and so on. And so I'm always tucking this work in, amongst other things. And once in a while, you get very close and even expert, if I may say so, editorial attention for me. But often, too, it's uh, pretty glancing. Just have to make a, a guess and, and go on. Uh, our own magazine. I should show you a few copies if you haven't seen it. I came on. Here's a cultural curiosity. See any resemblance? <laughs> Guess who copied who? They copied us. I know that because the deputy editor at the time when Harper's of uh, remodeled itself, redesigned itself had been in one of my classes here. So he spilled the beans once. He said, we like the look of that. So we we took it for ourselves. Each issue is about the same size. Each issue has some bit of art on the covers. The habit we have here is to use one artist for a year, which means three covers. And for a while, it was three covers and one backside, so four images from the artists for a year until we redesigned again. And in order to avoid having to deal with uh, submissions of art from all around the country and frustrate people with my inability to be a juror, a fine juror of art, the art always has an Iowa City connection, always somebody that's picked up locally or has been through town, or something like that, that I, that I happen upon. Um, and in this most recent instance, this is our newest issue, uh, Lynn over here is responsible for choosing that. This, by the way, is by the editor of a publication called Poetry Comics that is out there in the world a few places, and he also is the former editor of the magazine called Gum. Uh, the, and he's local, Dave Maurice, sometimes known as Dr. Alphabet. He, he wrote the first interstate poem with a lime spreader across a bridge across the Delaware River. He wrapped a city block in poetry. He wrote a poem on the football field at Columbus Junction, Iowa, during halftime of a football game. Now he's doing a translation of the Divine Comedy into uh, haiku, limericks, and curly one form for each book of the Divine Comedy. Uh, maybe we'll have to print a section of his haiku Purgatorio before long. I, I kind of like the idea. He would take the translation of—I forget one of the well-known translators, uh, an old one, one that I taught at Michigan 35 years ago. Uh, And he'll just take that translation and use those words for that tercet and find a haiku in it. Found poetry. I like found poetry too. I have a bunch of found poems in my own book. So anyway, that's Dave Maurice. This is a man who used to run a store in town called Things and Things and Things until he suffered a very bad accident and became a paraplegic. And then he became... A beater. He also had an MFA in art from here. So these are tiny, tiny beads decorating different things. One of them was a, a spray can that you'd spray mosquitoes with. And then one's roller skates and one are dancing boots. Uh, this one was uh, Wolfert Wilkie, the first director of our Museum of Art. Uh, you can find his work sometimes around town, especially in Giovanni's, if you go into Giovanni's you'll see his work on the wall. This one is uh, my pastor, also my wife. I'll play favorites with covers. I'll play favorites in the corners of the magazine too, but the main part of the contents are, are truly found by just reading and considering and talking with The good friends I develop over the years who read this material with me and say, here's what we like. Uh, Some magazines, you know, will be open to submission all year round. We are not. Uh, I have discovered that I have to pace myself, uh, or else I build up too much of a backlog. Larry Goldstein at the Michigan Quarterly never closes down. And I take that to mean that he's really a better editor than I, that he is tougher. He says no with more alacrity, and I find that I don't, so I keep taking things, and then suddenly the backlog is a year and a half, and that becomes uncomfortable. I want to keep it to around a year, and the way that I've discovered to do that is to read submissions only through the fall semester, get them September through Thanksgiving, you know, Labor Day to Thanksgiving, and then we'll find enough for about two issues, two issues plus a year from that. And then we run a contest in the spring, the Iowa Review Awards and all three genres. So people send in uh, manuscripts in January for that with a reading fee, which supports the awards and in a small way supports the journal too. And we spend the spring reading uh, contest entries and get another 100 pages of work from that. And if we keep it to that, and then an exception once in a while, oh, like some of your... Uh, instructors this week who have been in the journal before and I've known for years might slip me something. In fact, one of them I expected to see this morning, so I could, uh, but I don't because she knows what I'm going to tell her. Sorry, the backlog's a year and a half. I'll have to try another time. But in any case, uh, I can make. I try to make exceptions to people who've been in the journal before and have become repeated contributors by which I mean three or four or five times in my 30 years. Um, But I don't keep up with it very well. And it seems to me that if we read for the contest through the spring semester, do not read in the summer, although Lynn and I are busy part-time putting the August issue out, and then read in the fall when everybody's cranking up and full of energy for a new school year, that we keep the pace ahead that is comfortable, about a year ahead, a little hole in it here or there uh, try not to get too much over that right? um, what else to say about this I I published a book some years ago that was part memoir and part local history and called uh, Deep River and you know I really grew up beside the Missouri River and, and that is deep in my affections and my uh, sense of lore and history and commitment and I've thought ever since of another book that would be more occasional pieces worked together somehow that I've written over the course of of uh, editing this magazine which the issues for which I've been responsible I think have now reached 90 uh, when it crossed the years of my life that was a kind of interesting moment uh, but I, I think of that as another river or my other river you know the stream of things that have come into it and meander out of it the many connections to writers all over the country and in fact around the world Uh, a (laughs) few here was something really weird Uh, my little book of poems Osaba was reviewed recently in the Michigan quarterly review by a man who lives in France who happens to be from Des Moines a man I've never met uh, he's lived in France for 20, 25 years. However, about six or seven years ago, uh, my wife, the artist, uh, reviewed a book of his in our magazine under a pseudonym. So he would have no idea when he was reviewing my book that there would be that kind of circular connection. Uh, I just, he wrote me a note recently and I sent him an email message back and and broke that little piece of news to him. He hasn't answered. Maybe he's appalled. I don't know. But uh, uh, actually, her review was pretty nice, it seemed to me. Uh, And he's an eccentric who has taken off and done eccentric things and manages to live in uh, somewhere near Le Mans. (laughs) How he's done it, I don't know. Anyway, you must have some questions. My other river would be the River of Magazines, you know. Maybe I'll get to that book someday. Maybe they'll just be fugitive pieces that are already scattered all over the place and leave it like that. Now, I haven't told you anything about cover letters. Do you want to know about cover letters? Write them. (laughs) Second thing about cover letters, keep them short. Third thing about cover letters, don't brag too much. It really turns our people off to have a letter imply that you can't do without me that you would be a fool to turn me down, that I have earned such esteem elsewhere that uh, you just have to get in line. We like to think we're making up our own mind. At the same time, uh, we do notice some things, and more important than anything else, as I think I've already emphasized, it's some strange, small collection of human beings who are reading the work you sent out. And so you might as well address them as human beings and as one yourself. You might as well show some rudimentary appreciation for the fact that they're going to pay attention, or you hope they'll pay attention, to whatever it is you offer, right? It's just politeness. Here I am, there you are. Thanks for being there. Thanks for taking a look. That's what I have to say about cover letters. Uh, Cover letters that are more like a proposal would you be interested in? Well, only if it's something very unusual, let us say like, a, a, that is, if it's fiction or non-fiction or, or poetry, uh, you know, we want to read and see for ourselves. On the other hand, if it's a series of poems, each one based on some Midwestern image concocted or discovered in a story by, let us say, Hamlin Garland, of uh, you might want to let the readers know that that's what it is and and would they be interested in seeing 12 or 15 such pages and the pri- the probability is no or maybe the probability is a sample from it because there aren't so many pages to give. Uh, nonfiction is a murkier territory. You might well want to see whether somebody would be interested in an essay on X, Y, or Z. Uh, we don't publish very many uh, political tracts, let us say, or analyses of the Cold War or something of that sort. And occasionally you get a scholar who sees you as a you know some university reviews do. The Virginia Quarterly Review would be more receptive to that and, and the Michigan Quarterly might be more receptive to that and, and we don't tend to be. so it makes sense to write a, a query note there which you can often do by email now and not, not bother with the letter. Right? Uh, what else? Yes. I think generally, I can only speak firmly for myself. But uh, I think the more experienced the editor is, the less they're inclined to uh, to wish to be bullied by your (coughs) reigning prestige, you know. And you, and in fact, you know, there's the the people who are really uh, writers. You wouldn't, you know, you'd really. Think twice about turning down. Uh, think three times about turning down. Uh, never address you in a high-handed way. Anyway, they're they're too professional for that. So, put yourself in a in a professional posture by being um, straightforward, understated rather than overstated. Would be my second. couple questions here. First, uh, yes, sir. This,
2: this question might get a chuckle, but it's a serious question. What, is, what constitutes unpublished? You mean unpub- unpublished? Oh. Unpublished in the guidelines mm. for a contest.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, of uh, literally things that have not been published before, with a possible exception of things with very small venues like a student newspaper or something like that. Uh, the murky territory now is online publication. It's, does that count as publication? And increasingly it does. Uh, at when it first became a likelihood uh, there was the habit fairly frequently of putting something up on the web and then as the idiom went there anyway taking it down when it found a place in print but I think there are so many web magazines there out there now that are well enough known and besides something on the web can reach anywhere as our magazine is less likely to that uh it has become a public occasion, at least as much as something in a print journal, and it's and it stands for publication. You might make some exceptions if it fits in a collection that you're building that has a particular uh, topic guiding it. In which case, you'd re- you'd acknowledge that this isn't the first. This is an exception to your rule. It's a secondary publication. But generally speaking, we mean quite literally. It hasn't been. Vetted elsewhere, displayed elsewhere, in any form.
2: Well, I uh, in, in in one other occasion, and I don't recall exactly the occasion, but anyway, when I made this inqu- inquiry, uh, they said anything
1: less than 500 circulation. Well, you know, one thing about these magazines is there are there's no set of standard rules. So people like me are just improvising what makes sense to them. And I, I can well imagine a companion editor feeling the comfort of a clear-cut rule like that and therefore imposing it and living by it, and the next person may not. Uh, we got a, a translation by uh, a Polish writer, Julia Hartwig, who has been in the IWP, the international program, before, and her translator sent some work to us that would come out in a collection of her work in the next year or so. And I said, well, we really can't get it out before your book is coming out, and therefore we better say no, try, try us with something else. And, but then I had a second thought. In this coming year, the international program is having its 40th anniversary, and so we're trying to, to, to save room for a little more of a feature from their work, is we usually have a small feature annually, maybe double it. In which case, it would be nice to have her. In which case, having it out in a book somewhere first and in our magazine isn't such a big deal, right? But that's simply something I elect to, uh, you know, you have the rules so you can break them once in a while when it seems advisable to do so. Question there, yes. they're the standard they're the standard practice Uh, I don't think anybody likes them and some people say we don't take them and I always say how are you going to know until it's too late Uh, and you can make an enemy that way if that's what another magazine yeah oh I don't hold I don't hold grudges that much but if a person you know you might kind of remember and be shy of them another time. But it came about because the mechanics of writing changed. And when the rule was there for only individual, single-time submissions, it's when we worked on typewriters and copies were with carbon paper, you know. And the copy looked dismal anyway. It would be impolite to send it out. So you sent your type copy and and if it had been too many places and got to look bad, you retyped it and sent it out and so on. Then we got, of course, another generation or two of, of instruments. And the first printer was a dot matrix printer. You may remember those. And they looked almost as bad as carbon copies. But somebody discovered pretty quickly that if you Xerox them, they look clearer. And they look sometimes better than the original. So suddenly, a Xerox was almost a politeness. And then, of course, you have the, uh, what do you call it, the the fine printers now, I forget the term for it, Uh, but you can't distinguish them from type. And suddenly, there is no original anymore. You know, what's an original and what's a copy? And that makes it possible to send out 10 or 12 or 40, depending on uh, your mailing budget and your industry. And so the, you know, the doors kind of got knocked down. Now, it's different, too, if you're sending to a peer-reviewed journal, a more academic journal, that sends work out then to uh, professorial, collaborating editors, you know, vetters elsewhere. You don't want the same specialist in late 18th century studies to receive your essay from two or three different sources. You might be on the editorial board of more than one journal, right? Uh, that, that is still a no-no. But for the literary magazines, it's a kind of humbling practice. Um, you can understand why it happens. We do take a while to get back to you. varies from a month to five or six months, depending on what part of the year we're in and how many other things have backed up on us. At the same time, I have to say that that's what contributes to the backlog of reading. I mean, if ten stories go out every time rather than one, our stacks get taller, you know, and many other uh, office stacks get taller, and we do not multiply like your manuscripts can. So, therefore, it takes longer to get through them. And as I've said before, uh, when it first happened, I think my first thought was, oh gee, this is more competitive than I knew. I better jump on it. I better be able to respond quickly. I'm going to lose this thing. And it took about a month to uh, change entirely to thinking, well, it wasn't sent to me anyway. I mean, not particularly to me. It'll drop through the roulette wheel somewhere. Why should I care? Right? And it just, and it just stays there. Right? Uh, Do try, not very effectively because it's hard to sort them out to respond more quickly to things that uh, are clearly not multiply submitted seems like a a reciprocal politeness but that's the way things go I'll say one more thing about multiple submission I think it's more uh, permissible, advisable understandable with fiction than with poetry why? you produce fewer stories a year than poems if you're an active writer and if you're an active writer and have 20 or 30 poems to send out, putting them in envelopes of four or five each is already a kind of multiple submission. You might only have one or two stories, right? but they're all multiply submitted. Yes, ma'am. I wish I could, but I, first let me say to people, I know the hour is over. I don't have to run. I'm, I'm happy to take questions if you want to ask more questions. But if anybody has another engagement or is hungry or whatever, don't feel shy of getting up and going. Um, I There were occasionally magazines, usually in the coterie area, that you can detect the style from that is, is what that group of editors admires. Journals that are frankly political in their, um, in the tone of their content, or surrealistic, or experimental in one way or another, and others that are much less so. The university reviews tend to be more eclectic. And one of the the uh, the bad things about prediction is that we don't want every issue to be alike. So if we've had... Uh, experimental fiction in one issue we may want to have realistic fiction next for example Um, so I I don't know of any I think of my friend Larry Goldstein as being wonderfully eclectic in his tastes I think Spear Morgan is too Uh, clearly Prairie Schooner publishes much more poetry than we do more than many other magazines, Uh, so it gives shorter shrift to fiction, Uh, I don't know, but I'm afraid I can't be very helpful there, certainly not diagnostic, yes?
2: I'm talking about my husband's poetry, Uh, do I get addresses from poetry magazine, or the the different journals you mentioned, Um, where do you get the addresses from, the, uh, the college... No.
1: the place that I would go to first because it's a, a limited number but n- but still substantial would be to go to the library and look at issues of best American poetry and in the back they'll give you editors names and addresses for every magazine that was represented in that collection and if you go back two or three years you'll have you know a couple hundred names and that's more than you can use. There was a hand up in the back? Yeah. Uh,
2: yes, I'm wondering if you to Uh-huh. Or what do you think of those? How are those submitted for?
1: Well, I don't know that there's any rule there either. Uh, ours is is not quite a literary magazine yet. It's uh, I have profited so much from uh, the students who have worked with me, and in the case of the Iowa Review Web, it was people who had that fascination about ten years ago who said, well, why don't we try something here? And I just wrote on their ability and energy and knowledge, said, why say no? Why, who am I to say that this may not be the wave of the future? And besides, it's segregated, it's over here, it doesn't have to be too confused with a print journal, but its uh, impetus or the, the motivation for it was the idea of something artful that is a combination of electronics and the word uh, therefore the image permeates the word and the word the image in, in different ways and uh, there were you know a cadre of people uh, out there in the world devising these constructions they wouldn't show in a well you could you could show them in a museum but you'd have to project them on a screen right so that that the web is the environment for them and the, the guy who really got it going went off to be a, Uh, Ph.D. student at Columbia, got his Ph.D. Uh, He was in Lynn's position 10 years, 12 years ago. I don't know exactly when. And now he's an assistant professor, maybe an associate professor already at Penn State, teaching writing and so on. Uh, Brian Lennon is his name. When he left, somebody on the staff sort of stepped in and took his place. And then that man went to Minnesota, and somebody in the art department has been doing it since, but we may have another uh, change in the next year with somebody in the English department who's got those interests. But then it just sort of evolves into whatever, whatever it becomes, and that gives me no sense of rule for any other such magazine whatsoever, except to say I think there aren't very many who are as interested in the kind of experimental construction of art that's best are only possibly seen electronically. A lot of them are are a lot of print, you know, with some illustration, uh, an alternative to a print publication, which is perfectly fine. We haven't gone that far. Nico, you had a question Um, Well, I'd say it's been your good influence (laughs) and Mia's and and your predecessors. Um, I guess it's mostly that, um, well, I I am very aware as I keep at this that the ground at my feet keeps changing, you know, and uh, the way of new generations is to push the other ones out, you know, or ahead or on into the gloom or something like that, <laughs> and I've never wanted to be uh, uh, too headed about that, and I, and I pick up ideas from listening to you all and become friendlier things than, than I would have otherwise, and it seems to me, too, that one of the things that could be said about a university review as opposed to a review that doesn't have a university base is that it lives in an intellectual atmosphere that tends to be young, tends to be interested in new things, uh, cultivates a way of responding to change in art, and and that's part of the atmosphere in which you live. If you're at all alert to it, uh, you don't shut the door on it and say, no, no, that's not art. I mean, there are people, I guess, who do. I've certainly known lots of people who say, no, that's not poetry, this is poetry, you know, but... I've always been of a mind for one reason or another that uh, as soon as you say that's not poetry, that's an invitation to make it poetry. Uh, At least it's an anti-poetry, and an anti-poetry is automatically a kind of poetry. So play with it. And uh, I've always found room in the magazine to put my very favorite things, no matter what else comes in. And if I waited for just my very favorite things... I might have trouble filling up an issue a year. So it's nicer to respond to the enthusiasms that are demonstrable and somewhat explicable by the people working with me. Say, all right, let's see what it looks like. Let's see how it goes. It seems to work. That's all I can say. seems to work. There's a question in the back.
2: Yeah, sure. <laughs> uh,
1: to be a willing reader, uh, I would look around the community where you are, see what magazines are there, and go knock on a few doors. Say, "Can you use some help?" You'd be surprised. You know, you might make a friend. You might do anything from layout to being a screen reader, or to I don't know. Uh, it to the new staff but um, it, it the feel of it seems to be attractive I mean I've never had any problem finding some volunteers they don't have to say where are you they, they show up uh, there's something about there's a degree of altruism in it that makes people feel good sense of community some friendships are made there Um Occasionally, a marriage. <laughs> <No>.
0: <laughs> yes, ma'am. Um, you talked a little bit about cover letters, mm-hmm. um, basic kind of what you look for, and I was wondering if you could um, elaborate on that. You know, more specifically, in like how long? What are the sorts of things that you might include? I mean, obviously, be, be uh,
1: humble and gracious, but I don't know. Perhaps it might. Be if this is the page, about yeah, maybe that much. Uh, have much more white space on the page than print say who you are don't be at all ashamed or shy of saying you're an unpublished writer or you're a student or whatever uh, magazines are not doing their job if they're not willing to entertain writers who haven't been entertained before right? if you have some publication mention, mention that but be kind of uh, cursory. You know, if there's a lot of publication, sample it. Give them a few highlights. And if there's no publication, saying you're you're beginning to send your work around, and thank them for their time and attention, and uh, you hope to hear from them, and include SASE. Right. Uh, I find SASE is stamped, self-addressed, self-addressed, stamped envelope. Uh, Otherwise, you're likely not to hear back, and some people say, well, I've sent you my email address. You can get to me that way. But for the email address, unless I have a prepared answer, I don't have the st- standard form that I can send back. I have to invent something, and I'm not that great a typist, so I might get an extra letter in your address and it not get to you at all. And I don't feel particularly responsible for that, right? Now, there. That being said, there are magazines, and I'm sure we're all shifting in this direction, and I'm sure it's overall a good thing, and probably the Iowa Review will get to it too, but maybe not in my time with it. Where everything is done electronically, and the submission is electronic, and the response is electronic, and you can you can uh, follow the trail of attention to your piece, and so on and so forth. There are programs for that now. We can buy a program and juice up the office with that. Uh, haven't done it yet. Maybe we will. Haven't gotten there. Some magazines have. Glimmer Train, I think, for example. Yes, sir. Uh, or a comment, not a question. Um, I submitted poetry to the Iowa Review last year, mm-hmm. and I just
2: want to say that um, I got objections but, but someone took the time to write a, an encouraging comment
1: mm-hmm. Well, uh, it doesn't happen nearly as often as... I mean, we fail to do that more than we do that, no question about it. Uh, but I'm glad when it happens, and I certainly try to do it a good deal myself. Uh, I do think that, yes, you're a person sending, I'm a person receiving, I'm a person replying. The, re- the reply is, is just negative most of the time because that's the way the, odd, the numbers are. But to uh, acknowledge the fact that it's person to person seems to me very nice, uh, and the well anyway yes. Do you find Thank that, you too. <laughs> do you find that um, you often have submissions from novelists
2: who will send a chapter as a story for a literary magazine prior to their publication? And if so, do you find that the style and form is is different in these types of stories?
1: If I understand your question. Correctly, You're asking whether somebody who's published fiction, that is, stories before, might submit.
2: As a novelist, does he often send you a
1: chapter? Oh, not very often. Not very often. Uh, you get return attention from uh, poets far more often than from novelists. And I suppose when the story writer uh, publishes a novel or two, they sort of slip away from you because they have they acquire better-paying places in which they can publish. Uh, so it's you have to go seek them out. If you you know, and I don't do that because uh, too many aspiring writers are there who are also writing good stories. But there are quite a few. Uh, let us say. Not, you know, not famous novelists, but people who've published a few novels who uh, have been with us at one time or another, but once they get contracts and advances and so on with novels, they're not so much interested in coming around.
2: Yes? Thank you for staying over. I know you must hear these types of questions all the time, so thank you for that. No, question. that's all right.
0: But also, just given the volume, you know, there's so many more of us much known, is it, is it common practice to just read the first
2: couple of pages of a submission
1: given thousands and thousands? You'd think it would be more than it is, but the fact is, not only are there many, many submissions, but, but it's more than competent work, most of it. And so you start reading the story and you sort of want to follow it. I, I uh, Especially when we get really backed up, I tell our group that they shouldn't feel obliged to finish stories that they're convinced aren't going to go anywhere. Uh, But more often than not, people do. Maybe with a set of poems, eight or ten poems together, wouldn't read all of them if you've read three or four and you decide you don't see one there that you are excited about. But uh, chances are you look at everything. And in our contest, we, we try to do better than that, we try to make sure that everything is read by two people, minimum, and um, then to narrow it down to our finalists, a third and a fourth reading are usually required. I suppose, too, that the advantage of having graduate students around who aren't going to do this for years and years, but are happy to do it for a time, uh, is very helpful there, that they're they're interested in seeing what's being written out in the land Um, and they it may help them toward their own publication to sort of they they get a sense of what is working and what isn't working and that affects their own doing Um, so they read with uh, with a real industry and uh, and get really caught up in the things they favor but become very articulate about what's not working for them um, it's it's there's an element I, I like to use the uh, jazz musicians idiom of paying your dues and I say to them well you know you hope people are going to pay attention to your work you're, you're reciprocating here you're paying your dues and I I think there's something quite true about that We're down to a hard core. Any last question or two? Well, there's no use keeping Carol engaged. Thank you all.